Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Work Podcast. And today we've got a really special treat. All these bonus episodes that we try to bring on and interview all different kinds of storytelling people. We have lots and lots of authors, lots and lots of writers, a couple of agents, a couple of editors, sometimes actors or voice actors or cartoonists. But today, something new we have with us, Eric Bean, who is the author of a book called Bias in Media is All Around You. And what does that mean? What is it all about? We're going to find out. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Can't wait to get started today and get into all of the biases that circulate throughout all of our lives, particularly when it comes to the information that we're bombarded with. I want to start from the beginning of all this, but is there anybody who actually doesn't think that any part of the media is biased or is it just a matter of but it's not so biased that's it there's some players out there mainstream media that are doing the right things they're dedicated to journalism they're trying to avoid that yellow journalism they're trying to remain neutral but there are certainly journalistic enterprises out there that do take some sides and they are run by left and right and so forth and they use that poppet to their advantage i once saw a graph chart sort of thing of how far right or how far left is everyone and i think the most central news site i saw was the weather channel so <laughs> that's that, it yeah it was very reassuring to know that at least temperatures are given without bias they're right down the middle but the weather men and women they love to take credit when the forecast is great and they don't like to take any credit when they're wrong which is about half the time right it didn't talk about the correctness it just said what do they lean toward so yeah who knows so just starting all the way from the beginning why would someone like you you're walking around in your life or maybe you're scootering i don't know but you're going around your life and I need to write this kind of book. Where does this all start from? How does this all happen? You know what? This came to me uh, January of 2020. I had been teaching for many years journalism, English composition in community education, as well as community colleges, four-year institutions. And to make a long story short, we have a problem out there. We're being bombarded with misinformation left and right, and it's multiplied by our smartphones and computers. And But the real, the real clincher came to me when people in my own social media networks were sharing information that were false narratives, and they were kind of standing by them. And I thought... Well, that's not a very good use of information. Information should be authentic, should use information wisely with prudence and goodwill. So then it occurred to me with my background that I think we all need a little bit of help out there in terms of assessing information because information can fool anybody regardless of your education and background. And that's why I wrote the book. That's definitely true. So just to clarify, you're teaching journalism, so the interpretation of news was always at the forefront for you. Well, English composition, my students, I would always give them lectures on, on what makes a proper source, what's a valid source. And today, of course, with the internet and different websites, all of that has changed. You're certainly allowed to go on the internet, use sources for different papers and things, but you still need to be careful. We want to get information from all sorts of individuals. We want to get information 
information from bloggers. It's okay to work in some of those sources, but we want to make sure they're credible. We want to make sure that they're who they say they are, that they portray authenticity and that they're objective and that they use citations even in their sources, even for a blog. Because if they don't, the term in education, that's called audiosyncratic. When you don't include any other sources or the general term is, it's an editorial. And there's nothing wrong with editorials. We should be reading editorials. We want to get different positions from different people, but we shouldn't necessarily let all the information in those editorials guide us unless they're backed up with attribution and further references. So, and right now people are, they would love to get into a fight with somebody online just to make a point or find any piece of information that agrees with their own biases. That's called confirmation bias. And just for that, for that slam dunk and that win in their social media network. So that's led to a whole bunch of what's known as uncivil discourse. Right. That's the problem. We've got people who love to use colorful metaphors in their posts and going for the slam dunk, but are they really serving up good information, good facts? And to do that, we need to do research. We all need to do research. We just can't take the first thing that comes along that pops up in our social media news thread and use that because sometimes those can be bought off by algorithms and corporations who have the most gold rules. Yeah. So that's that's it. That's where we're at right now. We're at a very critical stage. And so all of this, when we can't get the information that we need to succeed, that can lead to a problem with democracy overall, because we thrive on good information so that we can all make good decisions on a day to day basis. And many people think that they understand information because nobody wants to think that information can fool them, that fallacies can be buried in the information. Everybody wants to kind of hum along and rely on their traditional education that they've always had. But these social media platforms are getting so sophisticated. Anybody can sound like a professional speaker. Anybody can sound like they have a great background. But... The book shows that we need to do further research. And one of the techniques that I show is called CLEM. It's an acronym for Kiros, Logos, Ethos, Mythos, and Pathos. Now, that may all sound like Greek rhetorical... Sorority letters. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but those are very simplistic terms. Kiros just means how recent was it published. Logos just means does it contain facts or statistics logic. Ethos is how much emotion it contains. There's nothing wrong with emotion. We want people to include emotion when they're posting something or writing something. But if it's to the point where they don't include any logos, facts or statistics, and again, we're back to editorials, then we have mythos, which is the subject matter expertise of the writer. What do they frequently write about? If they write about hate speech or if they write about doing harm, that's their subject matter expertise. Do we want to follow that person in our social media network? Do we want to share their information. Maybe we want to share it because we want to show what's bad information, right? Pathos is emotion. Ethos, I'm sorry, is the background of the author. Background. And so we need to investigate the author, their background. We need to investigate their subject matter expertise. When you look at a piece of information, no matter what form it comes to you, you can immediately assess heroes, which is how old it is. You can immediately assess pathos, which is emotion, and you can immediately assess logos contained in that piece without doing any further research and use that information to determine the overall level of bias in that piece, something that we all need to take the time to do. 
I think you sort of mentioned this also, that we don't all necessarily have the time to do thorough studies of every single piece of information that comes our way. So it seems like sometimes we try to find someone and we're like, that's going to be the person I trust. So whatever they're going to say, it's automatically true. Right. I'm not even going to follow up on what that person said because I have chosen that to be, and it could be someone who is worthy of trust. It's not negating that. Even someone who's worthy of trust does have their perspective that they relay information through. That's right. So there's other definitions for these personal bias terms, like there's affinity bias, where we only search for information from people that are like-minded, like us. Like you said, we already like that person, and so we kind of trust that person, and we will recirculate information from that person. And, you know, if you've done your research and you're comfortable with that to a certain degree, that's fine. But on the other hand, everybody's capable of making a mistake when they're publishing something or posting something. So we can rely on certain people that we've become familiar with, but it's very possible that at any time, anybody could have a conflict of interest, right? They could have a conflict of interest. They could be selling a product. They could be more for-profit than non-profit. And so the book also shows you that these are other metrics that we need to look at when we even with the people that we trust. So one of the reviewers that first reviewed the book, Mark McCaslin, said, question everything, right? We're at that stage. But you're right. We do need to trust the sources for the most part. But is anything ever the last word on the topic? Maybe not. These days, we have to understand. We don't want people to go on the other side and always think that everything is a conspiracy because then you can't trust anybody. Right. right. There's a lot of different ways to look at it, but confirmation bias is only searching for information that confirms what your personal biases are. Then there's conformity bias, where you search for information that you know your friends would want you to search for, or you know, you're doing it for them. You're you're conforming to the bias. Halo effect is your circle. You're searching for information that you know that your circle of people like and accept. And anchoring, anchoring is you find the first piece of information that comes along that allows you to win the argument and you don't search for anything else. But that first piece of information could be tainted. That's true. Because like you mentioned, it's easy to find the first piece that confirms something, but Again, we got to be very careful with that. It, it just depends on what's at risk. What are the risks? Am I using this one to just win a little battle in a little social network? Or do I need this for a report that where I could get a grade and the, and the, the source needs to be more rigorous? Or I'm giving advice, doing some public speaking. You're going to be giving advice to a thousand people. Well, I think you'll, you will want to check that source out with more time. That's another way to look at, look at all this information that's circulating all around us. And I have a seven-question survey that you can take if you go to biashandbook.com forward slash tools. Scroll down, you can take a seven-question simple bias survey that will show you what your personal biases are, how you consume information. That's just another demarcation when it comes to information, is your personal bias. Then we have the information itself and what kind of biases could be embedded in it, fallacies, conflicts of interest, hidden agendas. But all information, this is what I want to make sure that all the listeners know, all information can be divided into seven categories. Well, that's what there is. There's seven categories of information, whether it's a video, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a just a post in the social network. And those are academic, hidden agenda, for-profit, 
nonprofit, watchdog groups, government, and individuals. So anytime you get a piece of information, you can immediately decide, wait a minute, is this an academic source? Is it the for-profit, nonprofit? The watchdog group is like a nonprofit. They're out there watching to make sure that organizations and people are behaving and doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. Then you have the government, and then you have individuals like you and I that can contribute to the discourse. Hidden Agenda, well, we don't know necessarily who they are, but we know some groups, they don't have a customer service department. They're hiding things, and they don't represent what they outwardly represent. But anyway, so you can divide all information into one of those seven categories. That produces in of itself the initial bias of that piece of literature or that video, even that song for that matter, and so forth. So like, for example, if we look at your podcast, we could ask ourselves, is it for-profit? Is it non-profit? She's an individual, but she's also a podcaster. If we search the background, what is her background, the ethos? Uh, where did she grow up? What kind of hurdles might she have been through that make her into the person she is seeing? What's her subject matter expertise? If it's words, and she publishes a lot of things about vocabulary, nomenclature, I love to use the synonyms for words, nomenclature terminology, then she's an expert because she's done a lot of posts and uh, research into that area. So the, the book has one page at the end, one page where you can take any piece of information and it's a scorecard right. and you can score it to determine the overall level of bias. You can't remove biases from everything. Everything has bias, but what is the risk? Are you comfortable with something that has extremely high bias to, to circulate that around and believe in it? and tell everybody about it? Or would you be better off being more comfortable circulating, believing, and sharing something that you know has a little less bias and is more authentic and objective? And thinking certain things that you're mentioning, especially yeah. looking into the background of a person. From a writer perspective, we have certain narratives that it's called having an unreliable narrator. So this might be my protagonist, but can I actually trust what they're saying as a protagonist because we know maybe they have been a proven liar, they have an agenda, any of these things. But it's funny how it applies to literature, and in literature it can be very intriguing. But when it's applied to the news cycle, wait a second, we don't want the unreliable narrator in the news cycle. We want that in literature and entertainment. Well, no, that's it. And so if we look at fiction, you have protagonists, you have antagonists, you have round characters. Round character can affect the entire outcome of the story, but a flat character can't. I like to think of like flat character as somebody who drives the ice cream truck and they look like an ice cream truck driver. They drive the ice cream truck. They're a perfect ice cream truck driver. Round character may, be, may come out of nowhere to change the meaning of the whole entire story. Could we examine the biases that can occur in fictional pieces of writing? Absolutely. The characters that people create and produce, certainly overall, if you're a really good writer, you'd probably bake in some conflicts of interest. You'd probably bake in other metrics that we use to determine what bias is. That could be their own personal biases of the character themselves. Maybe maybe you've got a Catholic character that doesn't like Jewish people or Jewish people that don't like Catholic people. I often think of the 1972 TV show Bridget Loves Burning. Which right. took a, do you remember that show at all? I've actually heard of it, and I've heard of the conflict yeah. around it. The stereotype was a little bit reversed. It was a poor Jewish man who wanted to marry a rich Catholic woman, Meredith Baxter Burney. Bottom line was that they were kind of debunking stereotypes at a time. As a matter of fact, the show was forced off the air, yes. I think, after about a year, because the people running those two religions said, this is breaking too many norms. But the show was trying to exemplify 
identify people fictionally, but here's the reality of it. In real life, Meredith Baxter Bernie wasn't Jewish, and her husband was Jewish. So they were married for 15 years, from I think 72 to 89. Hmm. So all of this, in terms of writing, we could examine biases in almost anything you can think of. You know, and, and, and if we look at this even from prejudice standpoint, forget about like the level of bias and in information, something becomes prejudice when it affects your way of life. It moves from bias to prejudice. You know, that you become prejudiced when you don't want to listen to somebody else's opinion or you're prejudiced because you don't like somebody that wears glasses. Another great movie on this topic is the 1957 movie, 12 Angry Men. I am familiar with that yeah. one. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And they, were, they were all stuck in a room where they were deliberating whether or not a, I think it was like an 18-year-old Latino boy was being accused of stabbing his father, I believe, in that film. A lot of famous stars in that movie, Jack Klugman, lots of people. Bottom line is that, that it showed that the jury, they couldn't even listen to each other because there was internal prejudices going on in that jury. Where an old man stood up and he had a great point about indentations on, on a woman's nose that he thought she must have wore, wore glasses, but she wasn't, didn't wear them the night of the murder, apparently. Something like that. But nobody would listen to him because he was old. And they were stereotyping him because he can't possibly offer anything to the conversation at his age in the movie. Right. <laughs> so right. I think that's what they were depicting. Yeah, it's actually only going to say this as a kindness because it is a it is a good film. But when you're watching it and you're waiting for the punchline of like, so how did they rule? Do they find it? But that's not the point of the story, you know? Right. So you're waiting right. for that. That's not the point. The point is the deliberation of I got a game to go to. So I just say guilty versus no, you actually have to right, break it down. And I'm glad you zeroed in on that. Yeah, because that one uh, juror who said, just uh, come on, let's make a decision. I want to go to the baseball game. That's not the way you can make a fair decision on whether somebody should be sentenced to death or go to jail for the rest of their lives because you're hasty. Here's what I say in the book. If you look near the end of the book, this is what I, I'd say that if you run into a theater and you scream the word fire and there's no fire, what would happen? The theater management, somebody would take you aside and they, you know, could get to the point where if people were injured on their way out and there's no fire, you would probably be arrested. I asked the reader to consider this. If you share a piece of information that you know is a false narrative that is not valid, I don't think you should be necessarily arrested, but it should wear on your conscience a little bit. It should wear on it. And so the book also discusses what we call cognitive dissonance. And that is a feeling, just kind of like an uneasy feeling that we have when our behaviors are different than our thoughts. In 2018, when I was very fortunate, I presented a paper at Oxford University about fake ads on the internet, not just fake news. What I discovered at that Oxford 2018 conference is that people will recirculate information just to help get a candidate elected, not think a second thought about it, even if it's invalid information. And then we also have to ask ourselves, you know, when we see commercials for candidates that are running, how factual is that information that they're using there? There used to be a time where there was something called truth 
foods and advertising, where if you said your toothpaste can prevent cavities 95% of the time, you had to have the data to back it up. This person is a real person and has been paid to be on the radio. Right. And prior to the internet, remember sometimes you'd open up a newspaper and it would look like a news story, but it was just an ad for something. They had to put the word advertisement at the top of that ad. Mm-hmm. required because it fooled people thinking that it was a real news story. With the internet, there are no requirements like that. Nobody is really watching all of these posts, tremendous amount of information that's out there. And so we all need to be better consumers of all of the information that's bombarding us. Today, when we're being bombarded with so many colorful things, and I'm, I'm looking at TikTok right now. I've been studying that carefully. I think it's an amazing communications tool. You can just scroll through and see so many different things, get so many different opinions. There's good, there's bad, but there's also shocking material that's unfiltered. For young people, I think that's a problem. It could be a problem for anybody. There are people that look like they're from a professional news channel, but they're, they're not professional. And there's nothing wrong. We all, we all can contribute an opinion, but if you're going to masquerade as a professional television station, because literally we can all have our own TV stations now, right? Are people going to continue to tune into you because they like your authenticity of who you are? That's what it comes down to. I would say it's almost impossible to be entirely bias-free only because, and I'm, I'm going to be very specific about this, yeah. there's an event that occurs. So there's a tornado, say. There was a tornado that occurred and, you know, this, this, that, whatever happened. So that's raw facts data. We all see the tornado. We see the house that was destroyed. Now, as soon as I say something like there was a, a terrifying tornado, the adjectives I'm adding, it could be very true that it, we all agree that tornadoes are terrifying, but the fact that I'm already saying a terrifying tornado for, I'm trying to tap into emotion, and it's also my own perception. Maybe a storm chaser is like, tornadoes aren't terrifying. They are amazing. Why would you call a tornado terrifying? It seems like such an innocent adjective to add. Professional journalistic organizations, they're not supposed to color the news. They're, they're supposed to mirror the news. That's why we talk in the book. In the 1940s, many newspapers were called the mirror because journalists aren't supposed to editorialize on the story or they're supposed to say this is an editorial. Here in the Detroit area where I live, back in the 80s, there was a famous newscaster named Bill Bonds. Everybody liked him because he had a really good voice, really good personality, but he often blended editorials in with the news, and the, the station accepted it because of the ratings. And so that's where the conflict of interest came. But you're right. What you're talking about, though, is what we can go back to 12 Angry Men. You could have 25 people observe something and get 25 different opinions as to what happened, right? Yeah. So you're right about that. But, but that's why the book talks about outliers. That's other sources that we can all go to to determine what really happened. So if you really want to know what happened at the local municipality, you can get the minutes to the meeting yourself. You don't need anybody's but You just call up the municipality and say, I want to know who said what, when. You fax them to me, or maybe that's old-fashioned. Email them to me. So there's enough outliers out there that we generally know, for the most part, what's happened, let's say, at bigger events. Some things, you know, like, look, a baseball game, you've got enough people watching it where we know who scored, 
who didn't score, who got a foul, who didn't get a foul. Think about it. Baseball, you can buy books that track every single thing that goes on in a baseball game. Yeah. If we only had that many people tracking all the big news events, I am a little disappointed with investigative journalism right now. I think we could be doing a lot better job with investigative journalism overall. And that's a problem right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know why a lot of the mainstream media, a lot of them seem to have left true. So when I think about the pandemic, when I think about the controversy over the vaccines, when I think about there should have been more town halls, the people in charge, the leadership, just to ease the fears of people, should be talking, 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 talking. Instead of letting the misinformation swirl out of control in our social media. But if you don't trust the people who are talking, it doesn't matter what they're saying. That's a very good point. Yeah. That's true. And so and our, our ability to trust them has to do with how we were raised, what our personal biases are. But no matter how we were raised, no matter what our personal biases are, we all have to do a better job of being willing to listen and understand where they're coming from and then do our due diligence by investigating ethos, the background, ethos for subject matter expertise, looking for fallacies, conflicts of interest, all these things. It's easy to say, wrap it up in a nutshell, that there's a conflict of interest, but the truth of the matter is there's always some bias somewhere, and it just depends on whether or not there's enough outliers out there that can justify the fact that somebody's saying something, it's true, you can look for the information. I like what the forward contributor of the book wrote. So he's the director of the School of Journalism at Michigan State University. He uh, wrote that, listen, I can be transparent. I can give you a 10,000-page book that was published of what went on today in the Senate, but it doesn't make me transparent because somebody still has to take that information, whittle it down, can't editorialize, and tell us what it really what it really says. So that's what Tim Voss was basically talking about in the forward of the book. I guess a way for people to also try to balance is to try to get out of the echo chamber of the news that you gravitate toward. Because even if you don't agree with the other side or what other people are saying, a lot of them are saying it and they say, oh, we have proof for this. Whether or not you think they're interpreting the proof correctly, they are showing proof for it. That's like, hey, let me go check that out and see why isn't either my side saying this or are only some people saying this? Is there something to it? That's almost like an alert to you. It doesn't mean I agree, but it just means, hey, there might be more to this than I actually thought, sort of thing. Well, that's it. And people have to be more willing to say that, you know what, I thought one way, but now that after I've examined it myself, maybe I agree with you on that one fact. Instead of, nobody wants to get their pride hurt, right? right? That's part of it. That's why I feel that the leaders, when we think of the CDC, originally they said that the vaccine, you know, you can't transfer the virus. Well, maybe they shouldn't have said that. Maybe they should have just said that it lowers your chance of hospitalization and by people getting vaccinated it, it slows the virus down you know again this is why i'm still dumbfounded to this day as to where were more of the town halls while we're all sitting here worried on a day-to-day basis i think the communication in our local government level even at the national level could have been a lot better a lot better all the way around. And especially they're complaining that there's too much misinformation out there. We had a chance to do more town halls, to do more sessions, to get literature out there. And so anyway, so that's why I wrote this book, but I wanted the book to be short. I also elicited the amazing illustrations of Gail Gorski. Every single illustration of the book is hand cut. Wow. 
Yeah, I want to ask you about those yeah. illustrations. They're amazing. And what she does is that not only does she hand cut them, she sources paper from all over the world. She even includes real items, like there might be a real piece of formica, wow. uh, a real folder. There's a picture of where we've got people around a desk. You can see a real folder. Then what she does is she stands up on a chair, like I believe a 35 millimeter camera, and she adds a little shadow to them just to bring out a little, little three-dimensional look and then she takes a picture and that encompasses the illustrations. And we even have a hidden message built in. It's really interesting. Nobody's been able to debunk it yet, but we have a hidden message on page 29 inside of the Discovering Bias for Mental Health image. There's a whole bunch of ones and zeros, and they actually spell out something oh. with words. It'll be interesting to see if somebody figures it out. Huh. What happens to those illustrations after she photographs them? What does she do with them afterward? Well, that's a good question. I think she does say some of them. And the other thing is some of them we've turned into posters and we're going to be offering for sale oh. uh, you know, because people may want to have them. You know, I love the one, the Civil Discourse one that has the biker. There's a biker yeah. with the ponytail. Yeah. That's a really nice one. I believe she does save most of these and we certainly have the digital copies of them. So what we're doing here in the Detroit area that we just started, we're going to local library. She's offering paper cutting sessions because we've also we've done a children's book too on mental health prior to this book and then we're also offering sessions on bias on fact from fiction at the local libraries here in uh, Farmington Hills Wixom Novi they've all signed up because it's an important topic Pulitzer said over 100 years ago if we can't tell the difference between fact and fiction we may not have a country this is what it all comes down to <laughs> yeah this is not the conclusion we're going for necessarily but this is actually one conclusion I'm getting and I yeah. sort of mentioned this before everything that we're saying that we don't want in media and in information are all the stuff we want in literature. That's my writer brain. I want hidden agendas. I want the unreliable narrators. I want, because someone is coming from a certain background, they're going to be subjective to whatever it's going to be. Everything that's a big no for information and bias is show it to me in a book. It's crazy. Well, and that's why I remember when the movie, The Social Media, was it called The Social Media, that film? The Social Network. Yeah, The Social Network. That's what I was thinking. The Social Network. Listen, all of this technology, all of these social networks provide amazing backgrounds for fictional uh, stories. But the truth of the matter is, this gets back into the saying, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's sometimes when we see the way our government works when we look at past presidencies not just the most recent ones we can go back throughout all of history and, and begin to wonder where are the hidden agendas you know what do we know what do we not know but you're right from a fictional standpoint you want to have a good plot well then you better work in some misinformation right yeah that's it. But the thing is, is that what's happening today is this misinformation. Unfortunately, it's hurting a lot of people because people are jumping aboard the fallacy of the bandwagon. But, you know, sometimes we need to tell our circle, you know, guys, I, I don't agree with you in this particular issue. But we can still be friends, civil. Well, you should. We, yeah. We can agree to disagree. Yeah. But the book goes through the 10 most popular fallacies, a spotlight fallacy. You know, that's when a subject gets much more publicity and people tend to believe it only because it's been played more in the news. That is right? true, especially with a 24-hour yeah. news cycle that stories just have to be regurgitated. Well, that's they are. It. Yeah. 
that's it. And then we have false dichotomy, only showing two possible sides of a story when we know there could be many. Begging the question, this is when the author's premise basically and conclusion are identical. Right, that's begging the question. Got missing the point, or what's called red herring. The speaker makes a conclusion, but not one related to the argument. Believe me, when you write a book like Bias, you, I question my own thought process on a daily basis. <laughs> Do I like my book? Yeah, I'm biased. That's politics in general. On the one hand, like you're saying, we do want to trust our leaders, but just the fact that someone's in politics already means that there is some sort of agenda of they do want to become more powerful, whether power for power itself or power for whatever, but the louder voice you have, the more influence you have, the more you can enact whatever your actual agenda is, whether or not you like it. There's already almost like a just, you could believe, but just bear in mind that it comes along with certain things almost. That's it. So government, that's immediately one of those seven sources of all information. Right. Right. That's right. So right. you can take that same label, oh, he's a professor. So the book says, you professorship world for the full-time professors at the bigger schools, you've got to continue to get published or this, you know, the term publish or perish. That term came from that if you don't get published through peer review, if you don't have good research, you know, you're not going to get tenure. So already we can say, well, you know, the teacher is, is biased. I remember a situation when I was at school and I'm not going to name, you know, any schools. I'm not going to name any people. I had one professor, this was in the early 90s, and this was a magazine class about writing, and he was telling us, showing us examples from the late 60s. And I said to him, how come you don't show us any more recent examples? And he said, I don't have to, because I'm all set, I've got tenure. And uh, it's 25, 30 years ago already. So there's biases in academia, the for-profit, non-profit already. Anybody who's a for-profit, you know, Ford Motor Company, they're not going to say anything bad about their cars. Right. But that's natural. We all have to shout the advantages of our products, for profit or non-profit, to a certain degree, right? Right. But like what you were, had indicated is that already we can bottle it up and everybody into that those categories. Right. And then it gets murky with the hidden agenda because you just can't believe enough of the things that they say. Right. You know. It's like there's two parts to it almost of just have the awareness of the bias. And having the awareness of the bias can help you better interpret, confirm, research, etc. information. Yeah, that's it. So when I wrote the book, I was doing it from the standpoint that really, you know, 80 to 90 percent were being bombarded with all the biases. And I wanted everybody, regardless of their biases, to understand that. Yes. But there is a part on that form, that one page form that I have at the end of the book. It does ask, do your personal biases stand in the way? Because that is very much a part of the whole equation for a absorbing information, using information, and so forth. So that's where we're at. There hasn't been a tool, I'm going to sound biased, <laughs> that's, that's been in a, a, a format of a book that's this short, that gets down to it and provides people with a tool that they can use without having to read through 200 pages. Yeah, the book is very yeah. straightforward. I would recommend it to people as an information interpreter, and I'm going to, on the side, quietly recommend it to fiction writers to learn how to spice up their fiction. Yeah, because, you know, it's so funny. We'll get back to the technology. We knew that when Facebook came out that there were going to be crimes, that there are crimes that have been committed using Facebook. And we can write fictional so 
stories about it. TikTok is is the latest one. I mean, it's it's out there. If YouTube ran like TikTok, where you can just go through ninety second videos with your finger or yeah. any other videos with your finger, that might be a good way to do that platform. People will take advantage of these. People will broadcast live stuff that they're not supposed to. You can imagine what that could be in your head, and so on and so forth. And yes, for the fictional writer, wow, <laughs> so much material out there. If you can't develop something that can use all of the biases around us as well as the technology around us with the algorithms and the, the believability. It reminds me of that movie, The Red Pill or The Blue Pill, you know. Yeah, The Matrix, yeah. The Matrix. I love that one scene where the cell phone was delivered via Federal Express. That's outdated today too. But yeah, no, no. So if you're a creative writer and I'm, I'm a big fan of creative writers, there's so much. I'm working right now with some middle schoolers where I teach full-time and I'm helping them to write their first book. I don't know whether they're going to publish it because, you know, you have to have a business on Amazon in order to publish. But I said might be able to submit it to some literary agents. Doesn't matter what your age is. If you got good material, you never know. They might buy it, right? Yeah. So I've been working with them and helping them kind of get creative and understanding their characters and I'm letting some of them either they can do a nonfiction too if they want to, this effort. It's all good. But I just think at the end of the day, when we go back out there in the real world tomorrow and we're using our social networks, things like that, are we being civil? Are we using information in a responsible fashion instead of just screaming fire in a theater where there's no fire? Exactly. And just to wrap up, we always have our fill in the blank of, I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, stories, whatever. You could even do illustrators, I guess. Do X, and I really don't like it when they do X. So how would you fill in the blank for that? I like it when writers and editors are authentic. I like it when they're, the material is so well written that it's, it is believable. To me, it's the believability that really sells something in the long run and keeps people engaged on the edge of their seat. When I think of the kind of movie that I like, I think of being engaged. New information is going to be may come out in the last minute that okay. seems logical and keep me wanting more. I really don't like Do you have something for that? Obviously, it would have to be the opposite, but I, I don't like it when people misuse facts and information, obviously, from a guy that writes a bias book, <laughs> right? I, I don't like it when, even on the creative end, do your due diligence. If you're going to create characters, they got to be believable. You know, if you're writing a book that's set in a certain time period, 1880, make sure that if they're going to shoot somebody, they're shooting somebody with a gun that was available during that time, not one from today. Yeah, that's right? true. Right? Yeah, good right? point. That's how I'd like to end it right there. I greatly appreciate this conversation. So grateful to be on your podcast today. You preempted me. I was going to say thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. it worked out for it on both ends because we're both a little biased. Yeah, that's true. Very true. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Eric Beef. To find out more about Eric and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast or check us out at eltenenbaum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.